First Kings, the 19th chapter, Elijah's tough time. Without judging the great prophet, and he is, again, no less great for some of the things we're going to further examine about him that are not uh, in his favor, <clears throat> without judging him, we can learn from what God has preserved about him. And that's the whole purpose, is to look at what happened here, God's response to it, and... Uh, Hopefully that contributes to our growth. Now in this 19th chapter, if you're familiar with it, you may have noticed that Elijah's flight from Jezebel's death threat on him has some similarities to Moses in this respect. He flees for his life. Well, Moses, of course, after it was found out that he had killed the Egyptian in defense of one of his Jewish brethren, he flees for his life. Uh, 40 days and 40 nights in the wilderness for Elijah, without bread, without water, as with Moses also there on Mount Sinai, or Sinai, as some like to pronounce it. Uh, And then, of course, meeting there on Mount Sinai. And then uh, the presence of the Lord passing by. Those uh, things put him in the same league with Moses. It's pretty impressive when you consider it that way. But we have a lot here, so let's look at verse 1. And Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done, also how he had executed all the prophets with the sword. Well, remember the last verse in, in the previous chapter said that Elijah got to the city first ahead of Ahab. And that's going to come back into the story. Well, we'll just read it very quickly. Verse 46 of chapter 18. Then the hand of Yahweh came upon Elijah, and he girded up his loins and ran ahead of Ahab to the entrance of Jezreel. Here is Ahab, sniveling little crybaby that he is. He will again whimper over another man's property that he is coveting, and Jezebel will figure out a way to get that property for him. But here he's blubbering about being rejected and defeated. You would think, after witnessing such a profound miracle, or plural, miracles, that uh, it would move the king, it would move Jezebel. It does not. It moves them to violence. Also, how he executed all the prophets with the sword. Your beloved prophets of Baal are dead, Jezebel, because of Elijah. And she loved those prophets. Now, it doesn't mention the fire from Yahweh, although, of course, it says here that he told Jezebel all that Elijah had done. I bet you that was a piece of the truth that he would like to have suppressed. We know wicked people love suppressing the truth because the truth is not in their favor. Romans chapter 1, verse 18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. A lot of news editors are going to be in hell for the truths that they suppress because they did not want people to find out about the wickedness that was going on so so that it could be prevented. But truth doesn't matter to these two. They preferred their soap opera gods. Well, that's what man-made gods are. It's just this drama of superhuman beings doing their wickedness. 
this was the case with uh, Greek mythology and Roman, the Roman gods. It's just this big soap opera, never-ending story. They just keep tacking on a new story when that one got boring and perverse. The perversity. You know, Pompeii, you know, they, they, uh, the archaeologists have uncovered so much in Pompeii that tell us about how, just how perverted not only the people were, but their gods were, which were a product, of course, of their imagination. Jezebel was an evil human being, and Ahab adored her. And we can't lose sight of that. It will come out later in chapter 21 when he steals the vineyard of Naboth. Verse 2, Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah, saying, So let the gods do to me, and more, so, and more also, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. She sends a messenger because she couldn't send an assassin. She wanted to kill this man. Why not put a dagger in the messenger's hand? I think this is bravado. I, I also think the prophet missed this point. He missed the fact that, you know what, if she really wanted to kill me, she, here's her chance with the messenger. But it doesn't happen that way. It says here in verse 2, saying, So let the gods do to me, and more also, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. Well, tomorrow will come and go. Well, he flees, of course. <laughs> but she, he, her oath fails. If she could have killed him or had him killed, she would have. And uh, here we find out that uh, for her, well, let me go back and go forward a little bit. There were those that took an oath to kill the Apostle Paul, that they, would either neither, that they would neither drink or eat until they killed him. Well, he got away from them. Did they starve to death? Or how do you, you know, what do you do? Okay, cancel the oath. Anyway, it just reveals the folly of it all. So she does not succeed. But Elijah gets the last say concerning her. Later on, he'll come and approach Ahab again, and he'll tell him how that, She's, she's going to die. That uh, her gods could not honor her oath. It would backfire. She would be tossed out of a window. She would be trampled by horses. And then the dogs would eat her. And that is what will happen to her. In verse 3, And when he saw that he arose and ran for his life and went to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. So, he gets the message that there's a contract out on your life, and it will be satisfied by tomorrow. And he says, I'm out of here. Uh, the threat of a violent death will test anyone's faith. We're surprised at this. He's such a prophet of thunder, and he will, again, regain that thunder. Uh, up till now, he didn't move unless God told him to move. Go to Kirith, the, the, the brook, uh, and then go to Zarephath, then go tell Ahab. Well, here he's moving without God. Uh, what happened to the words of Elijah that said, the God before whom I stand and the Jezebel whom I flee? Uh, that <clears throat> This crushed him. He didn't take this lightly. Uh, this will just collapse upon him, this mistake. God's going to be so gentle with this man. 
He performed, at this time, no less than seven miracles, profound miracles. And all of it was just forgotten, or not applied, I should say. We pray that when we learn from the Bible, we will apply the lessons. And, of course, we struggle from time to time in this or that, but many times we, we are able to achieve the objectives. And, and, you know, I don't know about you, but there's times I've said to myself, look at that. I'm actually loving this person. <laughs> I'm doing it. I'm doing the Christianity. Thank you, Lord. Uh, and uh, yeah, it's almost, it's humorous to, on some levels. Another one is quite remarkable. So he's running without God. Unconsciously, we can assume that God has grown less efficient in our lives if we're not careful. Those earlier days, he seems to be right there with us. And then as time goes on, all of a sudden, we've got more knowledge of the scripture, more knowledge of, of the faith. And yet, God does not seem to be as on the ball for us or as interested in us. Of course, that is not true. At this point, Charles Spurgeon makes this statement, this comment. And I've said this before, and it's such a remarkable statement. He says, Elijah retreated before a beaten army. It's so accurate. It's so true. It's something to remember. Do I do that? Do I gain the victory in Christ and then retreat because of something that spooks me? It says here, and he went to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah. That's about 100 miles from Jezreel. It is Judah's southernmost border the end of Judah's territory, completely out of the jurisdiction of Ahab and Jezebel. But he's not finished running yet. He has to get rid of his servants so he can move faster, it appears. Uh, it says, and left his servant there. This is the servant that was on the mountain with him. And he said, go look for the cloud. And I see a cloud the size of a man's hand rising out of these. And, and now he's witnessing his pastor collapsed right in front of him. Well, it's unfortunate, an unfortunate witness, but this stuff happens. And I think for also unfortunate is how Christians react. I mean, wouldn't it have been horrible if, if after God restores Elijah that the servant doesn't want to have anything to do with the prophet? I don't think that happened at all. In fact, the ministry of Elijah gets elevated in this sense. Uh, out of this, Elisha will be anointed to be his disciple. He doesn't take the ministry right away. He's got things to learn. And Elijah, Elijah and Elisha, they're both remarkable, remarkable servants of God. So he leaves his servant uh, after defeating Satan's clergy. Uh, just remember that. Uh, he gets up to the city gate that's where I read from chapter 18, verse 46. He gets to the city gate. He, he gets news that he's, he's, there's an attempt on his life coming. And he retreats before that defeated army. Fear shut down his thinking and his faith and his recall, at least effective recall. In other words, he could have remembered uh, the miracles, the, the wonders, sure. But he wasn't applying them, so it was ineffective. At the word of evil, he runs. 
Paul says to the Galatians, are you so foolish, having begun in the spirit, are you now being made perfect in the flesh? And that's we're seeing on the unraveling of this great man of God without judging him, learning our lessons. If Elijah can flee, I can flee. If, if, if Elijah can be restored, I can be restored. If Elijah can flee, I can learn not to flee. Verse 4, but he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree and he prayed that he might die and said, it is enough now, Yahweh, take my life for I am no better than my father's. Well, at this pace, according to what we have here, he covers a distance of 100 miles plus a day's journey in less than 24 hours. He's moving. We don't know how long he had to lay over in Beersheba. But uh, if, if we have lost hope, then we have ceased to be an asset. This is a fact, and it helps us remember to, to not lose hope, regardless of how great our ability is. I don't know. I mentioned this a couple of weeks ago in one of the messages, and I, it, it's pertinent to mention it here again. Not even the, the mighty Elijah was worth much to God in this uh, hopeless state. He ran without orders to run. Other times he was told to run, told to return. And to lose courage is to become a liability. Ah, Great lesson there. I don't want any of that in my life. But what happens if I do lose hope? What happens if I do turn tail and run? Well, there's more to me than that. And there was more to Elijah than that. And that is something that Satan does not want us to be mindful of. God does. And it came, and he came and sat down under the broom tree. Uh, this tree, incidentally, Job mentions that uh, it's edible. The roots were edible. Job chapter thirty, verse four. I'm sure you want to write that down, in case you really get hungry. Sometime you know you can eat parts of a broom tree. He says it's enough. I've had it. I've had it with ministry. I've had it with life. That's what that means. Uh, the drama, the the brook with the ravens bringing me food, the child that died and that whole fearful episode, and, and now this, I'm done. It may, it just, I feel like a coward. That's what he is going through. Again, he doesn't see the victories. He sees only the present pressure. This is a tough time for Elijah. It'd be a tough time for anybody. Had he so isolated himself from other believers that he could not benefit from the encouragement that comes from the body, the body of believers, the righteous brethren? I think that is part of it. He says here, now, Lord, take my life. Now, of course, he didn't mean this, but it is serious stuff. If he meant it, if he wanted to die, he could have just stayed back in Jezreel. There are plenty of people that are willing to help him with that. So uh, he, he's, he's dejected at this point. And he, you know, um, his, his performance as a man of God is now defective to him, unlike ever before. And he, he wanted to no longer be, to just be removed from it all. He was ashamed of himself. He had to have told this story, and it had to still hurt when he told it. The sting was still there of having forsaken his duty. To God. Isn't it ironic that the man here that asks to die never dies? 
He gets taken away in a chariot. God, the, the comedian. It's just like, no, and in fact, I'm not going to let you die. And it, it not, not in a spiteful way, not, not like so there, but just in a remarkable way. And we believe this, and there are countless multitudes that hate us for believing this. They think this is all a myth. And when you look at the things they believe, Jesus is like, you know what, I'm good where I'm at. You need to get over here. Jesus said, and whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. You cannot read that verse without the complete verse. Because it's not an empty statement. It has a question that goes with it. When he says to Martha, and I, I know I the risk of just being redundant. Whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Uh, it's, it's quite a challenge. Well, uh, he'll get other chances to run, and he won't flinch. In fact, he'll call fire down on people for having the audacity to come and arrest him. But this, uh, please kill me alumni group, we should consider it. Well, Job... Job of the group, he had, he, to me, he had the greatest cause to say, okay, I'm done. But Job, of course, wanted his life to end. Moses, you know, if you're not going to go, if you're going to treat me this way, just kill me now. Uh, I mean, he just loved these guys for their honesty. Then Jonah, thrice with Jonah. Uh, Jonah had big problems. But these guys prevail because they tell us things that, again, that only they could have told. Dejection can be a serious thing to a servant, to a great servant, and learning this can help us be prepared. I know in my life, I say, yeah, well, I'm not in any place when I feel down and dejected. I know I'm not in any place that other God's, God's other servants have been here too. Jeremiah, just fed up with ministry, fed up with life, fed up with all that was going on. Paul the Apostle at one point said, I despaired even of life. Where was God? The delay. Why wasn't God doing more quickly? And so he says, I'm no better than my fathers. Well, God never asked you to be better than your fathers. He just wanted you to serve him. A little insight onto how the the prophet saw himself. You know, I'm better than everybody else. But we've covered some of his arrogance, and we'll get back to it a little bit more, because he's not letting it go himself. It can take a long time to come to this realization that you know better than anybody else. In our youth, we can tell ourselves that the world has been waiting for us, and here I am. You know, everybody else is missing the ball. I see what needs to be done. Yeah, you go run with that. Uh, I'll I'll see you in 10 years after you've made everybody around you miserable and you come to realize that you're just like us. Uh, Anyway, the lesson, it is better to run to God without running from the work of God. That's true. But it's also sometimes very difficult to do because there's these things inside of us. They're invisible, but they're there. And they just want you to strike, they make you want to strike back at God and say, you know, I'm done with you. And not as far as salvation. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking, the apostates do that. I'm talking about serving God. Uh, and God is so patient with us. You know, I'm going to let you just chew on that for a minute and see if you, how, how you land. Verse 5, then as he lay and slept under a broom tree, suddenly an angel touched him and said to him, arise and eat. So God does not give up on his prophet. He comes and he feeds him. He ministers to his physical needs. 
Now, it is true. There's one way Elijah could have avoided all of this. Stay in bed. Don't serve. Just go do something else. And, And so he's on the front line. And that helps us be a little bit more gentle with him and ourselves and others. Verse 6, then he looked, and there by his head was a cake of bread on coals and a jar of water. So he ate and drank and lie down again, just like that. I'm always amazed at these people that have these angelic visions in the scripture, and they just act like this guy just shows up out in the wilderness with food. He eats, thanks, and goes to sleep. Does he have a comment to make? Like, are there houses in heaven? You know, there's so many questions to ask these guys. They know so much stuff. What's the best way to cheat at cards? They've got to know. Anyway, here's an interesting thought about this. God, I believe, created the universe in a matured state. When he created the universe, the light traveling at the speed of light from some far-off galaxy was already at its destination. It did not have to wait light years to arrive. God can create cooked food. That's what we're seeing here. Uh, this is what, you know, you, you listen, it took billions and billions of years to do that. No, it, it does, does not, not with God. But they don't, they don't want that because then they have to be accountable morally. And that is the big disconnect. So he ate and drank and lied down again. Uh, well, what else, you know, what was he supposed to do? Didn't have a camera with him to take a picture of the guy? Could you see Elijah in a selfie and the angel? Uh, that just would have been wonderful, but God knew better. So, uh, uh, again, most of the time in Scripture, the recipients of such visions and miracles seem unimpressed. It doesn't mean they, you know, Aruna thresh, threshing the wheat and the angel shows up and he just keeps working. Uh, Gideon, just dialoguing casually, oh yeah, well if I'm a man of God and how come our ancestors uh, Manoah and his wife his parents of Samson, they were a little bit, you know, oh this is spooky uh, you know, so that was cute, because uh, he's like we're going to die, we've seen God, and she's like stop it, you'd be dead already, I mean you've got to love that little inter uh, exchange, anyway verse 7 and the angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, because the journey is too great for you. So again, he allows, he allows the prophet to eat twice. He feeds him twice. He lets him sleep twice. And he allows him to, to rest and digest. Now, my doctor told me once, don't eat and lie down. And go to, don't sleep, eat and sleep. Well, but that's, the food makes me sleepy. I mean, it's the best time. And, and I defy that because of Elijah. And I, ha- I don't get heartburn and stuff from doing that. I get it from other things. So I figured out where those things are, and I, I, I avoid them. But sure, I, I eat and get a good nap some, many times. I mean, after like an hour at 2 o'clock, that lunch hits you, especially if... Anyway. So it's just interesting. Uh, what would you say to a Christian doctor that gave you advice? Elijah did it. <laughs> like a little kid, right? <laughs> he did it. I'm doing it. Well, uh, anyway, uh, building him up physically, twice as strong with food and rest before God begins to deal with him spiritually. He puts him to, he feeds him, he gets him rested, and he puts him to work. And later on, he's going to get back to his emotional state. 
It's like God is just in, in not, I'm not going to rush this uh, because he knows what he's doing. He knows who he's doing it with. Um, already established in verse 5, it says this was an angel. Here it says it was an angel of the Lord, not that it was a, a, a theophany or Christophany, an appearance of Yahweh himself in human form. But uh, to make this distinction that this is an angel of Yahweh and not some superstitious character from um, some other pagan religion that shows up. Uh, it is uh, a, a necessary distinction for the audience that would be reading this. In verse 8, So he arose and ate and drank, and he went in the strength of that food forty days and forty nights as far as Horeb, the mountain of God. Well, that's Mount Sinai, um, where Moses received the law, an alternate name. Deuteronomy uses this more than the other parts of the law. Um, this, the fourth and fifth time that God has ministered to Elijah with food. So we remember he did it with the ravens. He did it with the oil in the, at the widow's house with a little bit of flour. And uh, here under the, the broom tree. Uh, this is better than protein bars. These Elijah cakes, man, they take you 40 miles. So he's fortified with the journey because inside of these cakes was the uh, riboflavin, the 11 essential herbs and spices, and of course... The essential oils. I thought that was kind of funny. <laughs> Anyhow, it's about a 200-mile journey from Beersheba, but he's, again, in the wilderness somewhere. To, to, this is a long journey. He travels. Uh, I don't know. If you, do, if, you, if you factor 200 miles, 40 days, 5 miles a day, he's, he's going at a very slow pace. Maybe sleeping in the day, traveling at night, as some of the Bedouins like to do. I, I don't know, and I don't know why I'm even ta discussing this with you. But uh, anyway, 40, that number. Well, judgment is associated with it for sure. Trial is associated. But also isolation is associated with the number 40. Israel was isolated in the wilderness. We know why. But others will have that number 40 as associated with them, and it will not be trial and judgment. It, uh, it will be work in process. Moses was on the mount with God for 40 days. There was no judgment on Moses for that. Elijah's journey here in the desert. Jonah, he declared to Nineveh, 40 days. And they isolated themselves in the sense that they separated themselves from their normal life, their common experiences, and began to consider their ways. And, of course, the Lord Jesus in the wilderness for 40 days before he was tempted. And the great purpose of that temptation of Christ was to tell us all, hell and human alike, this is the Son of God, and nobody like him. And that was, so the question is, could he have failed? Could he have submitted to the temptation? No, that's the point. The point is, any other human being would have submitted to face-to-face -face temptation with Satan, not him. And Satan knew it. Well, but Satan's insane, so it's not enough. He doesn't process what God does. If he wasn't insane, he never would have rebelled in heaven. The thought would never have crossed his mind, I will be like the Most High. You have, what are you, crazy? Absolutely, he is, he is. He is. He's the father of lies. He's the father of insanity. Verse 9, 
There he went into a cave and spent the night in that place. And behold, the word of Yahweh came to him and he said, what are you doing here, Elijah? I mean, God is just so, um, so he's isolated from serving. And yet God finds him approachable. And so God approaches him. And he asked him this soul searching question. Why are you here? You would think he could say, well, you fed me and, you know, you've been leading me along here, helping me for this journey. You know the answer. That would have been a smart aleck response, which would not have bode well for him. But anyway, uh, this, um, he was sulking, of course. Uh, He's on the sidelines. He didn't get his way in ministry. He did not get his way in life. And for the Christian Life is ministry. It's supposed to be ministry. Then there is, of course, public ministry. We are to do both. Christ served privately, and then uh, when he comes to his public ministry and John the Baptist baptizes him, which is the initiation of his public ministry uh, for, uh, the, for us to, to learn and observe and to do. Well, he um, had been a critic commando, Elijah, of everybody else, and now God is dealing with him. He's gotten him far away from everything. And if you've ever been far away in some remote place in the world, when you think about it, you say, you know, I really am far from home. Uh, Especially in another country where you're not a citizen. You know, you look at a map, you say, wow, I'm here and I live here. Well, Elijah, Elijah is far away from his stuff. He probably didn't own anything because, you know, anybody that eats bugs doesn't really, can't own much. But anyhow, verse 10. Um, Look, pause here a minute. If you eat bugs in the Bible, then you're fair game for Bible preachers to make jokes. Because most of us don't eat insects. Uh, However, watching uh, what some people bring through customs from other countries, there are other people that do eat insects. And they even sell them in little packages. So if any of you are looking for new foods for your palate, you might want to consider the insect world. Verse 10, And he said, I have been very zealous for Yahweh God of hosts, for the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. I alone left, and they seek to take my life. Uh, so was Obadiah that uh, hid people in a cave instead of hiding in a cave, like you're doing right now, <laughs> and, and the servants that he hid, uh, what about them? Well, we've discussed that, so we're not going to take too much time on that, well, unless it, it helps with what's going further develop it. He says, for the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant and torn down your altars. Okay, we've talked about that too. True. But there are still Souls to be saved, there's still a Baal worship to get rid of. And they will get that worship of Baal out of the land. But it will be a process. He says, I alone am left and they seek to take away my life. Yeah, what about that victory on Carmel, Elijah? Because he's saying, if they succeed in taking my life, then your work is over, Lord. Because I'm the only one out there on the front line. They said, people think, get to this place. Uh, somebody in ministry can get to think, I'm running the soup kitchen, and if I don't, if I don't show up on time and get this done, it ain't going to get done. They can't do this without me. 
uh, this is still a trap for human beings. So Elijah worked himself into lopsidedness. He's listing. He's about to capsize. God is uh, intervening on his behalf. And he figures it out later. He doesn't see it now because he's too emotionally invested in this. His dejection has got his vision clouded. He can't see. His spiritual cataracts are on him. So in addition to feeling ashamed and alone, he feels abandoned. And that's not the same thing. You can be alone, but no one abandoned you. But to have someone abandon you now creates another condition. You've been wronged. And this is what he is saying. He felt that God should have done more for him in the cause of righteousness, and God did not. I know that. I I know this place very well. So does James. James said, Elijah, a man with like a nature like ours. Like Elijah, there are times when we are ready to run. But unlike Elijah, we're not able to make it stop raining and then start raining and call fire down on wet altars and just raise people from the dead so we can't lose sight of how great this man is. It is Elijah who reports to us, this is what happened to me, serving God on the battlefield of ministry. That's what this is all about for us. What if he just never told us this happened? Well, God would not have used it. God knew this was the caliber of man he needed just for these things. And so Elijah's eyes are only on his hardship and God's apparent reluctance. You know, we allow God to give us so much hardship. After that, now God's got a problem here. He's he's not being kind. He is centered on how he feels and actually doesn't answer the question, but he criticizes others. He's that critic commando. Pride, self-centeredness, self-pity, self-destruction. They go together. Verse 11, then he said, Go out, God speaking to him, stand on the mountain of Yahweh, and behold, uh, Yahweh passed by. And a great and strong wind tore into the mountains and broke the rocks in pieces before Yahweh. But Yahweh was not in the wind, and after the wind an earthquake, but Yahweh was not in the earthquake. I mean, this is pretty intense. I mean, he's breaking rocks. I mean, this is like a tornado on the mountain. It's pretty scary. This is, this is speaking the language of Elijah because he's been a powerful man. Again, clear similarities between the experience of Moses on the same mountain of God that Elijah is on. And yet, um, well, don't let the Catholics know because they'll put a shrine up there. I, I think certainly the, mount, the present on your maps, that Mount Sinai, I don't believe that is the mountain of God. Anyway, uh, but you're not going to change it, so there you go. This, uh, you know, Moses said, now therefore, if I have found grace in your sight, show me now your glory that I may find grace in your sight. So Moses was saying, God, I want to know you more. I want to see you. I want a closer relationship with you. And God says, well, you can't see me all straight on. Uh, I'll have to downsize for you. That's what happened with Moses. Here, God is initiating it. He's saying, my servant needs my presence. He needs a deeper experience with me. He has to observe more. And so there's this personal encounter, this personal experience. Um, God made the mountain. He makes the wind, the earthquake, the fire, all by the creator. Elijah is getting 
a lot of attention right now, is he not? It's, it's, but God is still other places doing other things. He's still watching out for Obadiah. He's still, I mean, he's ubiquitous, of course. He's everywhere at the same time. God is so gentle with his servant in need. He doesn't say, he doesn't scold him. He asks him, why are you here? Verse 12, and after the earthquake of, uh, and after the earthquake, a fire, but Yahweh was not in the fire, and after the fire, a still small voice. Uh, nature is not God. Of course, paganism is the worship of created things without calling them created things by the creator. Uh, there is no such person as Mother Nature. There is no such thing as Mother Earth. That is paganism. It comes straight out of hell. And uh, we should point it out when we find people behaving this way, as though there's some alternate energy in the universe that is intelligent enough to run things. There is no alternate. If Satan is going to get to do something, he's got to get permission. He is never free to act on his own uh, against us or in creation. He is the God of this world, but he is still controlled by the God of creation. Satan is a created being, not self-existent. Well, the worship of uh, created things at the exclusion of the creator is Satan's distor distortion. There are those in Christianity, I fear, that have to have sensational experiences. They can't sit through expositional teaching. They've got to have something that emotionally, that gives them a, a thrill, a sensation. Okay, I can't change that, but I think that is less than ideal. And I think, again, emotional people tend to think only of their emotions. They don't think of the other person's emotions. I've just noticed that over the years. This person's all upset over themselves, what they feel. They don't care what everybody else feels. Well, I think we should have vinegar Kool-Aid. <laughs> well, we're not going to get vinegar Kool-Aid, no matter how much you like it. Actually, I saw somebody in Pakistan, I think, they have these vinegar stands where they actually have these <laughs> pickle juice. You just, ugh. I'm sure I like pickle juice as much as the next guy on somebody else's plate. But anyhow, coming back to this, uh, the, just uh, wanting to constantly come to church and be wowed. That is less than ideal. How about wanting to come to church and hear that still, small voice? No, I want the earthquake. I want the fire. Uh, anyway, God, the still, small voice. That means not rough, but gentle. That's what this is saying to us. God shows up to the prophet. He sort of flexes his muscles. I can do this, but I'm doing this instead. Not rough, but gentle. He's ministering to his needs now spiritually, which include his emotions. Patiently listening to the prophet complain. What are you doing here? Why are you here? What's this all about? As troubled heart. And, of course, Elijah is in dialogue with God. Um, so gentle with his servant who is depressed. That's what he is. Just kill me. I don't want to live anymore. And God is just gently dealing with him instead of, put your boots on, stand up like a man. <laughs> you know, he's not doing that. There, there are times when you need to do that, but uh, not as often as we might think. We don't mind doing that to others. We just don't like it when somebody does it to us sometimes. 
Anyway, verse 13, so it was, when Elijah heard it, he, that he wrapped his face in his mantle and went out and stood in the entrance of the cave. Suddenly a voice came to him and said, what are you doing here, Elijah? So God is returning to this. He's not done with it. He comes back to it. He's just still small voice. And so he beckons him. He heard God. And he's covering his face, probably thinking that whole Moses thing. God said, you can't see my face. <laughs> I'm not taking any chances. And I might get a glimpse and die. Exodus 33, verse 20. God said, you cannot see my face, for no man shall see my face and live. And Yahweh said, here is a place by me, and you shall stand on the rock. And so it shall be while my glory passes by, that I will put you in the cleft of the rock. And so it shall be while my glory passes by. And he just develops it from there. Incidentally, at this point, uh, Moses moved his, the tent of meeting outside the camp, away from the people, closer to the mountain, and that's where this takes place. Initially, it was in the center, and uh, it just um, there would have been, uh, been no cleft of the rock to hide him in. So, anyway, coming back to this, he went and stood in the entrance of the cave, where God told him to stand in verse 11. Uh, suddenly, a voice came to him, um, in verse 9, the word of the Lord came to him. Now it is the voice, the tone, that still, gentle voice. When God speaks to us, I, I find he's, he speaks in my tone, um, or to, to me, as I just know it's him. Because I couldn't have thought of that. God will tell me something that I would otherwise not do, not want to do. But when I know it's him, I go do it. And I don't mind either. I should add that. And he says, what are you doing here, Elijah? The second time he asked this question, he's going deeper with his servant. In God's eyes, Elijah retains his greatness amongst the prophets. It's so important because we tend to think, now I'm fired. Now God is done with me. Because we might treat each other that way. We treat someone else. But God is not firing his man. Verse 14, and he said, and Jonah, you know, he doesn't fire Jonah. Verse 14, he said, I've been very zealous for the Lord of hosts because the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left, and they seek to take my life. And so God says, is saying this to us. This man is still stubbornly clinging to his lame excuse. I'm giving him another chance to come clean. And he's not doing it. This is what happened in verses 9 and 10. He's exposing the prophet's stubbornness. A key ingredient to, to legalistic self-righteousness is this kind of thinking. I have been zealous for the Lord of hosts. That's all you need. I have been zealous. As though you created that zeal and it was not imparted to you. Uh, he, he makes himself feel justified Never mind my running. I'm the only one. They've torn down your altars. They've killed your prophets. Not me. I alone am left and they seek my life. It's a miserable place to be. It's also miserable to serve in ministry and feel like you're not reaping what you are sowing. This is what he felt. He put so much into it, he should have gotten so much more out of it. If you press that thought too much, you end up in the, with the prophet Haggai, who says, you know, you're going to put money in bags that have holes in it. 
You're going to sow much and reap little because your priorities are wrong. So if you overthink it, you can say, you know, my priorities, uh, you know, I'm doing something wrong. And God is sometimes saying, no, things take time, they take work, and you're in a cursed world, and you know this. Don't lose sight of it. Just because you're defeated in, 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 in an endeavor doesn't mean that you've lost everything. And so I emphasize Elijah publishes his unfaithfulness, as did Jonah, for us to learn. Verse 15, And Yahweh said to him, Go return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus, and when you arrive, anoint Hazael king over Syria. Specific instruction, he's putting him back into the ministry. He does not punish him. Uh, this is um, modern-day border of Syria and Iraq where this desert is. Anoint the king over Syria. Um, as with King David, anointings and actions, things like that, they're not always immediate. David was anointed as a young man. It took him years before he gets to the throne. Uh, Elijah will anoint Elisha, and Elisha will have a servant anoint Hazael. Oh, no, Jehu, sorry. Um, so just to show you that when God gives these commandments, these individuals are involved, but they are involved and allowed to exercise discretion and to delegate long as the job gets done without violation. Verse 16, so many comments left out, New Testament uh, cross-references, we just don't have time, but verse 16 and you shall anoint Jehu, the son of Nimshi. <laughs> That's a cute name, right? That's what you name like a, a little cute little dog. Hello, my little Nimshi. Anyway, you shall anoint Jehu, the son of Nimshi, as king over Israel. And Elijah, shall, uh, Elijah the son of Shephat, of Abel-Meholah, you shall anoint as prophet in your place. Jehu is a particularly violent man. It will be his horses that trample Jezebel. And then he says, well, you know what? She was a king's daughter. Go bury her. And they said, all we could find was her head and <laughs> her hands. And <laughs> Gross. I can't wait to get there. Uh, I mean, it, you know, it's just because you just, you want her to get it. And you'd be lying. <laughs> I mean, you'd love to see her convert, but knowing that she's not, well, let's hope she gets the most gruesome death that's available on the menu. <laughs> so maybe somebody else will learn. Okay, back to this. Elijah anoints Elisha symbolically by casting his cloak on him. Uh, we'll, we'll, we need to speed up because we're going to come to this. We'll come to these other characters as we move along. But by the time Elisha the prophet-to-be, and Jehu complete their work, Baal worship will be removed from the northern kingdom because it would have consumed the southern also. The go Satan's goal was to wipe out the seed for Messiah to come and cancel all the prophecies. But this Second uh, Kings chapter 10, verse 28, 28, thus Jehu destroyed Baal from Israel. And he does it by deceiving them. He says, hey, let's have a big party for your priests. Come on, let's get everybody out who doesn't believe in you and let's just be us. And they get them all out, and he says, no, kill them. <laughs> I mean, it's like, that's what he does. It worked. Anyway, it says here, and Elisha. This is, uh, again, he's one of the 7,000 that God will say, I've got 7,000 that haven't bowed my knee. 
there's a history between these two. Elijah must know this man uh, for this to make any sense. And uh, this... Um, uh, this Elijah will enter ministry while this Elijah goes up in a blazing chariot and there's nothing depressing about that. When God takes Elijah home, he is not depressed anymore. In fact, he's got such a zeal. But I can't wait because Elijah is such a committed servant. I am not leaving you. <laughs> I'm going to be with you. So we'll come back to that. Verse 17. And it shall be whatever... Whoever escapes the sword of Hazael, Jehu will kill. And whoever escapes the sword of Jehu, Elisha will kill. You mean God's prophets kill people? What about in the New Testament? Well, not, not the church, but the tribulation period. Revelation 11.5, And if anyone wants to harm them, fire proceeds from their mouth and devours their enemies. And if anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this manner. And those are the two witnesses that will be coming to the world that uh, will, will just be amazing. We won't be here to see that, fortunately. But by these three men, uh, God will get rid of Baal worship. Satan, uh, his plans will be crushed. And he'll come up with other plans. Verse 18, Yet I have reserved 7,000 in Israel... All whose knees have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. God is saying, oh, by the way, I have defiant ones like you. They believe in me. They reject Baal. And I want you to anoint one of them. And his name is Elisha. You know who he is. He's the rich kid. And he was a rich kid. And, I, and just because you say rich kid doesn't mean it's automatically derogatory. It's what you make it. Elijah made it honorable. Um, God did not rush to correct Elijah's wrong opinions, but he did get to it. And just because you get away with a wrong opinion doesn't mean you're right. You have to, you know, connect it to something. Hosea will mention the people kissing their, their golden calves also in Hosea 13. Uh, this 7,000, they were the minority in the northern kingdom. Their backs were against the wall. Their testimony was overwhelmed by the, uh, the, the, the rule of evil, abounding wickedness. False religions gained the upper hand, and they still do in many places in the world. I mean, the Ottomans came along. They were you know, Muslims, and they just uh, uh, terrorized Christianity to, Communism, Mao, they just killed as many Christians as they could kill. Watchman Nee was a victim of communism. Um, so, anyway, that was his name, Watchman Nee. Anyway, coming back to this, his writings are still available. I don't agree with everything he says, but he certainly was a brother of the Lord. He certainly was a sharp cookie and a martyr for Christ. Uh, verse 19, so he departed from there. And found Elisha, the son of Shaphat, who was plowing with twelve yoke of oxen before him. And he was with the twelfth. Then Elisha passed by him, threw his mantle on him. Well, this is interesting. So, he owns twenty-four oxen. Two to a yoke. There are twelve of them. So, fourteen teams. Elisha was with the last team. Well, the twelfth team, sorry. Not fourteen. Uh, but here's five things about Elijah's father. Because he's not mentioned. 
Well, he's wealthy enough to have 24 oxen for field work and to not even blink when two of them are sacrificed to celebrate the prophet's call to ministry. He was delighted that his son was a man of God and going to be the assistant to the great prophet Elisha because there's no protest recorded. He raised his son in the house of God in love or else God never would have chosen Elisha. And uh, Elisha loved his parents enough to want to say goodbye to them as he was heading off to ministry. The call to ministry is no excuse for rudeness. And I have met those in ministry who are, were, were and are rude, as though they have some right. They're pretty surprised when a Christian pastor, me, namely, punches them out. <laughs> I didn't think you'd do that. You love the Lord. Anyway, he was wealthy, but his father made him work nonetheless. You got all these oxen. It's not a little thing. And then drought, and he's still got healthy oxen. And uh, his father's making him work to learn, you know, boy, you got to learn a skill. So he, and he taught good manners to him. And we're, that's going to come out in this. Elijah is calling Elisha to ministry, and Elisha is going to give up this lifestyle to serve the prophet. And so once again, we see the Lord calling people who are busy. Moses. Moses was busy on the mountain with someone else's sheep as a shepherd. Gideon threshing wheat. David was a shepherd. Nehemiah was serving a a, a Gentile king. Amos was a shepherd and a tiller of uh, sycamore fruit. A tree that gives a little fruit. The sycamores around here can't eat there tree because it'll make you more sick if you eat the fruit from the sycamore. Sycamore make you sick more. All right. Anyway, there are sycamore trees around here. <laughs> Very beautiful. Uh, I know some, some of you are allergic to them. Um, uh, anyway, um, where was I? Ah, the women. How about women? Well, Rebecca. Rebecca fetching water at that time of day, and the unnamed servant of Abraham is coming looking for a bride for Isaac because Abraham made him promise. Put your hand under my leg and promise to me you will not get a wife for my boy from these women in Canaan. And so the prophet, uh, the unnamed servant, he, he goes to uh, Syria to fetch a bride. He says, Lord, let her offer me, give me water when I ask for a drink, and let her water my ten camels. So seriously. I've never watered 10 camels, but I can imagine. Uh, and two humps are one. Uh, anyway, uh, <laughs> two lumps. <laughs> All right. <laughs> well, a two hump camel is going to drink a lot more than a one hump camel. And poor Rebecca, the, the Bible tells us she, she gave him a drink and she volunteered. Let me water your camels. Hey, what a hardworking woman. Then Rachel, she was a shepherdess too. When Jacob met her, God calls people who work. Uh, Idle folks, they don't seem to get the call. They remain where they are. They idle. All right. Anyway, Elijah, uh, he's going to throw his cloak around Elisha, but uh, he doesn't get to keep it. He doesn't get to do that until he's taken up in a chariot and it falls behind. Verse 20. Then he left the oxen and ran after Elijah and said, Please let me kiss my father and my mother, 
then I will follow you. And he said to him, go back again, for what have I done to you? Well, this is, you know, he's unsophisticated, almost crude, Elijah is. He just comes over to the guys working hard. He just throws his cape on them. It's like, what is that? It's hot out here. Um, it's just kind of odd. So Elisha, he knows this is a prophet, so he runs after him. And he says, let me say goodbye to my parents, which means we have to have a send-off. He's not going to run in the house, see you, Mom, going with Elijah. He's not doing that. He wants a bit of a ceremony here. So, you know, Elijah, he's an uncouth guy, living alone. Again, the whole bug-eating thing makes you a little odd. Great man of God that he is. Could you imagine offering offering him spaghetti and a <laughs> what's for dinner? <laughs> spaghetti. Oh, I hate that. Let's you got any beetles? <laughs> yeah, they're out in the garage. Just move the boxes around. They just, they'll show up. Anyhow, uh, this is unlike the man in Matthew eight, who the Lord called to ministry. He said, "Let me bury my parents first. That didn't mean the parents just died because the Jews buried right away. There was no embalming, so they would have that would have they would have been dead, and he wouldn't have been there to have that conversation. He meant, well, let me hang around my parents until they you know die and leave me an inheritance, and then maybe I can enter ministry. That's not the case here. Uh, and he said to him, "Go back for what have I done to you?" And that's kind of a weird. It's, he's pretty much saying, "You know what? You know what this is about. Uh, you've you got a calling from God. What are you going to do with it?" And so, so again, a little crude and abrupt, but. Uh, Elijah doesn't push. He says, you know, let them go and do this. And so this is where we see some more interesting things. Verse 21, we're almost done. So Elijah turned back from him and took a yoke of oxen and slaughtered them and boiled their flesh using the oxen equipment and gave it to the people and they ate. And he arose and followed Elijah and became his servant. This is fantastic. He kills two oxen. This is a lot of meat. And a lot of time to bleed them, to, sl- to slaughter, uh, slaughter them, butcher them, <clears throat> and then boil them up for everybody. And he's giving the meat away to everybody. He's celebrating. I've been called into the ministry. Uh, what a remarkable man and a remarkable family. And apparently the people uh, just uh, adored this, uh, that they, they have this, this meal together. A characteristic of Elijah's devotion becomes even more pronounced when we look at chapter 2. Uh, I think it's verse 6. I just will take one. It's the whole section. But <clears throat> this is Elijah is going to be taken in a chariot, and he's trying to get rid of Elijah. And Elijah's not leaving. Then Elijah said to him, Stay here, please, for Yahweh has sent me on to the Jordan. But he said, As Yahweh lives and as your servant lives, I will not leave you. So the two of them went on. And this was carried out three times, if I remember correctly. So it's just impressive. I'm not leaving you. I, I'm your servant. I'm, I'm here. I'm going to support you as long as you need support. So uh, anyway, uh, this is a village festival now. Uh, the father doesn't complain that he loses two oxen. <clears throat> I love this story. And uh, we'll now close in prayer. I think a lot to think about. We still have a lot of Elijah to do. And then Elisha after that. And then once we're done with kings, uh, we'll, we'll be done. We'll be raptured. We'll be <laughs> Let's pray. Our Father, um, such exciting characters. Thank you for 
preserving these for us, real stories about real people, and the invitation <clears throat> always goes along with the story for us to grab as much likeness of the righteous that we can and to learn about you. And this, this evening, it was your gentleness on a servant that failed and had a tough time, and you restored him. Pray you get us all home safely this evening. We ask you in Jesus' name, amen.